Hey, it's Sunny Days. I am the co-host and co-creator of Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag. Listen, I am a podcast her, okay, H-E-R, an activist, a thought leader, pin pusher, and lover of poodles. And I'm Lisa Davis, MPH. I am a lover of social justice, healthy living, dogs, and I love being the co-host and co-creator of Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag. Now is the time for honest, unfiltered conversations, for authentic voices and their stories, and for connection. Join us as we confront the moment head on with this podcast. It is passionate. It is real as lives behind the headlines. Active allyship, it's more than a hashtag. And listen, it goes beyond the likes, the retweets, and the hashtags, making space for the vital dialogue necessary for racial justice. And now on to the show. Hi, I'm Lisa Davis, and I am solo today. So glad you're listening to Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag. Sunny will be back next week, and we'll be doing again the Did You Know? and also talking about the Chauvin sentencing and much more. So this is an interview that I did with the amazing Theodore Roosevelt Johnson III and his book, When the Stars Begin to Fall, Overcoming Racism and Renewing the Promise of America. We talked about his book. It was a short interview, sadly. It was part of a radio tour. I think I got about 15 minutes, and I am very much hoping to have him back, especially so Sonny can be here as well. We did have a great conversation, and he's an amazing man, and I'm going to go right into the interview right now. Thanks so much. Hi, I'm Lisa Davis. So glad you're listening to listening to Active Allyship is more than a hashtag. Unfortunately, my fantastic co-creator and co-host Sunny Days cannot be with us, but she and I are going to talk about the amazing book, When the Stars Begin to Fall, Overcoming Racism and Renewing the Promise of America with Theodore R. Johnson, who joins us now. Ted, I know you like to be called Ted. Welcome yes. to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, your book is absolutely amazing. Now, we always ask the first guest, actually, Sunny always asks the first guest, what were you marinated in? <laughs> marinated in? <laughs> what, like your values, the way mm, you were raised, how you yeah. came to be who you are? What a great question. Um, so I am the child, I am the grandchild of sharecroppers in the Deep South and the child of first-generation uh, black college students who were lifelong IBMers. And I grew up with a, uh, in a family that really valued church, and so I spent a lot of time in the black church, um, and that valued education. And so everything that we did was focused on getting good grades and um, you know having access to op- other opportunities. So I was marinated in optimism and faith and a kind of... Um, discipline that required getting the best out of yourself um, in all of your pursuits, education being uh, one of the top ones. Yeah, that really comes through in your book. It's so incredible. You know, I love throughout the book, you start right away in the introduction. You have a vignette. You start at the age of 12 with a very painful one. And then three decades later, you talk about delivering this speech to the White House Fellows Alumni Leadership Conference. And what I love is you write about the challenges racism has posed in our country through the stories of you and your family. And it shows how real people are harmed by the broken promise of America. 
Can you expand on this? Yeah, absolutely. And so if I had just written a book um, that recounted episodes in history, some political or philosophical frameworks and academic terms, and then talked about the challenge uh, that's presented to us and then the opportunity we have, I think a lot of it would fall flat because um, the theory doesn't feel tangible or practical all the time. And so I trace my family story from enslavement through to today as a way of putting a face to the theory, a face to the history, a face to policy, so that we know that these aren't abstract ideas that people with power throw around one another as they jockey for a position, but that real folks are affected, harmed, and sometimes killed based on the decisions that our leaders make. And so sharing the story of my family, you see both the damage that racism can cause, but also the uh, the the the, uh, the consequences of faith and optimism and how that can push the nation to be more true to the principles it professes to hold dear. You're right. Despite maddening contradictions, I love America. Mm. Wow, that's such a great line because I struggle with my love. I mean, now people aren't like, I'm not listening to you anymore. Well, anyway, I'm just being <laughs> honest. I struggle with the, with the racism and, and the hate and the, the violence. And that's why Sunny and I created the show to bring awareness to these issues, to tie up hard conversations, to bring white people to the table, to really get involved and listen and be uncomfortable but Mm. talk to us about that uh, i love america and contradictions yeah so the first thing i do is i make a distinction between the united states and america and so i talk about the united states as this geopolitical entity a nation state that is governed only by its interests not by a sense of morality or some absolute moral compass but by the fact that what is good for it is it in its interest to pursue, even if it's not necessarily principled or moral or ethical? Whereas America is about the ideas, the values that we hold dear, which is that we're all created equal, that we have unalienable rights, including life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so I love that. I love who we're supposed to be. I love the aspiration of this nation, even though the United States, the actual entity, has not yet achieved the American ideal. And so I can love America while holding the United States accountable for all of the times, history, and you know, historically and today, that it's fallen short of living up to the ideals that, that are captured by the term America. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that because, again, I struggle, and I think reading your book really helps because this whole idea of, the nas- of national solidarity and citizens coming together under something that they believe in, it's something moral, it's not material, if you can talk about that as well. Yeah, absolutely. So I do think the best way, perhaps the only way that we can overcome the effects of racism in our country is for citizens to establish a national solidarity across lines of difference, particularly racial and ethnic difference. And what national solidarity is, is when people come together over a cause of morality or justice in order to hold the state accountable, the nation state accountable for being in breach of the social contract. And so if we only come together because we're self-interested, because we want to have better jobs or make more money or whatever, that's not thick enough to keep people tied together in unity, standing in solidarity when trouble comes or when people try to exploit racial tensions to divide us for political purposes or economic purposes. So national solidarity has to be a connection based on a moral cause and uh, standing in solidarity with folks even when you may not be harmed by the issue in order to hold the state accountable. If we are a nation that where government derives its power from the consent of the governed, then it is incumbent upon us to come together and provide that consent instead of bickering amongst one another who the dream is for, who the promise is for, and hoarding it for others like us to the exclusion of our fellow citizens. 
What do we do about white people who don't want to lose their power? And I think that's so much of this, right? They don't want to give. They have this ridiculous illusion or this ridiculous idea. I guess it is an illusion that if they let something go and they have to be like, yeah, we're not the top, which is so sickening. But what do we do about them? Yeah, it's difficult. And this is real. You know, um, so when you are in a society that has a racial hierarchy, Mm -hmm. those at the top of the hierarchy will feel like they've lost something when those at the bottom of the hierarchy are only brought to the level, only brought to equality. And that sense of loss, though it may not be accompanied by material things, feels real. And it's not to be discounted. It's a very difficult thing to accept. But if you believe in the principles of our country, that we're all created equal and have these rights, then all of us, no matter your race, or or, or ethnicity has to practice some sacrifice and some forbearance to create the country we want, the country we hope to to, leave to our our children, the next generation. So to white folks who say, um, you know, my parents worked hard, everything I've got, I've worked hard for, and I didn't have any privilege, and, and this is just the sweat of my brow, I would say the same, a black person who had the same life as you and the product of the sweat of their brow does not lead to the same life that you presently live on average. And so the fact that the hill to climb for some groups to the American dream, to the promise, is more difficult than other groups is evidence of racial hierarchy in our country. And saying that there's hierarchy, saying that there's privilege doesn't suggest that you have now coasted to your position. It only says that other groups have not enjoyed the benefits of their work in the same way that you have. And that that is fundamentally incompatible with the principles upon which the nation says that it was founded on. Right. You know, that, that is so right. Now, you described the book as a three-legged stool of three-legged stools. I love this. You say the main stool being that racism is an existential, existential threat to America. I agree. Mm-hmm. The second leg we talked a little bit about, national solidarity. Mm-hmm. And you also talk about the third leg, which is Black America provides lessons for, for what this national solidarity could look like. Talk about the first two. So that's that's the big stool. Um, and so yeah. you're right, that race, <laughs> racism, structural racism, existential threat to America, not the United States. The United States right. has proven it can live quite comfortably with racism, including slavery. But the mm-hmm. idea of America cannot coexist with this kind of racism. So that's why it's a threat. The second, um, that national solidarity is the way, the best way to mitigate the effects of racism. And that's what we were just talking about. People coming together across difference to hold the state accountable to rid our structures of unfair and injustice. The third leg is that Black America holds particular lessons for how this national solidarity can be constructed. Not that we hold the only lessons, but that we have a contribution to it. And this is, so that is the, the first three-legged stool. And then the next one is, what are those contributions? I talk about the, the political strategy of superlative citizenship, which is when people fulfill all the duties and responsibilities of citizenship, even when the state doesn't deliver on its obligations. So this is where you have black people who escape enslavement, fight in the Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, and after the conflict is over, the United States returns them to slavery to spend out the rest of the years, despite the fact that they serve the nation. This is where you have uh, black veterans fighting in World War One and Two, and not having access to the GI Bill and the home loans and the education grants that come with it, leaving us out of the middle class. And despite all of that, 
Black Americans have continued to fight for the country and all the things that it stands for. The second leg is what I call trickle-down citizenship, which is for a nation-state like the United States, if you want to move the nation to be more racially progressive, making the moral case in and of itself is often insufficient because nation-states are governed by interests. So trickle-down is when you marry moral claims to a national interest, like when the civil rights movement exposed the hypocrisy of democracy in the United States during the Cold War to show the rest of the world uh, that there was a gap between who we were saying, who we said we were, and who we actually were. And this is how we saw a lot of the racial progress in the civil rights movement between 48 and and 1968. And then the last one is social solidarity. Uh, I didn't choose to be black. I was born this way. And yet there is a, the shared and common experience of being black in America creates connections among black Americans in the same way most Americans, not all, but most Americans did not choose to be Americans. They were born into the country. And in this way, we have to find a way to build connections among one another, despite our racial, ethnic, religious differences, because the project of democracy, the project of America requires that solidarity, despite the fact that we didn't choose our country or our fellow citizens. You know, I I was listening to an interview with you and you were talking about, I think the, the host had asked if you need to experience any kind of prejudice in order to really get it. And you had said not no, and I just want to make sure I said that right. Mm-hmm. And for me, you know, I'm Jewish. My grandparents had anti-Semitism. My parents had anti-Semitism. We had, I had anti-Semitism where I grew up. My parents were very, they taught me early the evils of racism. When white flight happened in the 50s where they were living, they didn't move. Their neighbors were black. I grew, you know, so I have all these values. And I have to wonder if it's part of that feeling other if I would be so passionate and also just obviously my upbringing, right? But I wonder if my parents, I mean, I'm hoping they'd still be awesome, but in that way, but I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, it's a tough question. And so I do think that empathy is possible. You know, I I do think that you can um, recognize when someone is being done wrong. And even though you've not experienced it, understand that someone needs to do something and that you should be part of the solution. For example, you know, I recently lost my mother to cancer. I've never had cancer, but, um, the, despite not ever having it, I recognize very early on that it's incumbent upon all of us to be part of the solution to, to, for research, for you know, nonprofits, etc. And because it makes our country stronger, it makes families stronger, etc. And the other part of this, though, is that very few of us have lived lives that have not been touched by discrimination in one way or another, based on gender, sexual orientation, class, race, ethnicity, immigration status. And so all we have to do is look in our family stories to find that common American story, which is we were probably part of a group that was excluded from the full rights and privileges of this country. And all of these groups in different ways with different histories have fought for inclusion and largely been successful, maybe not completely, but I am certainly more happy being a black man in 2021 than in 1921 or 1821. So progress is real. Uh, And so I don't think you have to experience the exact kind of racism or discrimination to be able to recognize that it's wrong and to connect with those who have suffered from it and then uh, hold the state in this example accountable for remedying it and uh, and stop perpetuating some of the the discrimination in our structures. 
you know, we only have a few minutes left. I just want the audience know. Usually our shows are 45 minutes to an hour. I, I have you as part of a radio tour, which is such, such a blessing. But I really do hope you'll come back because I know Sunny would love to talk with you. And there's so much more that I wanted to ask you about. Absolutely. You know, one of the things I think that, that I worry about is, you know, in the book you talk about Obama's dog, Bo, right? Yeah. And when some white people were told that he belonged to Kennedy and then other people, Obama, they didn't like the dog as much as Obama. And I'm like, what the flip are we going to do? How are we going to get these people to get their some empathy and get it through their head? And I get so discouraged, but again, that's why we do the show, and that's why we talk about these issues, and we have to keep talking. This is this is tough, um, and so the, there is there there are multiple tasks ahead of us. One of them is to um, not allow people people's interpersonal hatred of other groups to shape society in a way that turns the society into one that is racist and discriminatory. That's a long slog, and that is not something that we can just hope will die out and eventually fix itself. It's passed on, it lives on, and people exploit it. But the the issue around policy and the way we can attack structural racism is by doing the right thing even if people don't like it. And what happens is it becomes socially unacceptable to behave in certain ways. And that causes people to change their actions and behaviors because of the fear of ostracization, the fear of shame, um, and the role that plays in keeping society sort of within acceptable bounds. And so when Truman, for example, desegregates the military in 1948, a lot of people rejected it, including people in the military. He did this for political reasons, which talks, you know, goes back to the trickle-down citizenship point. But the fact that he forced the nation to accept it. Same with the Civil Rights Act of 64, the Voting Rights Act of 65. A lot of people rejected this. But because the country had determined this was the path forward, behaving in a way that was out of these bounds um, exposed you to punishment and social um, shame. And that has a a shaping effect on how people conduct themselves publicly. doesn't solve the problem of racism, but it mitigates the impact it has on people's lives and allows us to take just one more step closer to being the more perfect union of, of Lincoln's rhetoric. Well, I think you're amazing. The book is When the Stars Begin to Fall, Overcoming Racism and Renewing the Promise of America. Theodore R. Johnson. Okay, Ted, how do we find you in your fantastic book? Uh, yeah, so the book is available everywhere in bookstores near you, uh, as well as online uh, through all the major booksellers. You can go to my website, theodorerjohnson.com, and find uh, events as well as pre or order the book there, and as well as the brennancenter.org to find the work that we do there to protect voting rights and mass incarceration, protect our civil liberties, and book uh, information is, is available there as well. Thank you so much for listening to Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Tell your friends and family. This is really important and we want to get the word out. So glad that you're listening. Please keep coming back. Also follow us on Instagram at activeallyship.podcast. Thank you so much.